tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. David Cummings, and now it's dark. Dear Noah, love the autumn. Oh, that season, crisp and cool. A harbinger to others of another year at school. But Noah never understood their misery and grief. He'd gladly trade the summer for a single tinted leaf. Despite his comrade's sense of loss and urge to gripe and grouse, they'd humor him, remembering what grew behind his house. For there lived an impressive oak, and regally it stood. Upon its boughs a kid could see beyond the neighborhood. And it was from this vantage point ablaze with harvest hue that they would watch the dimming sun recede as darkness grew. Yet Noah, feeling cheated, knew he couldn't share these sights. He wished that he could join them, but he had a fear of heights. This isn't fair. The tree is mine. The time of year as well. Though just a fleeting skyward glance turned Noah's legs to gel. His pals began to taunt and tease with catcalls from above. Hey Noah, you should see the view. It's one you'd surely love. Boy, look at all those pretty leaves. The scarlet, orange, gold. And we can spot them, everyone. Too bad you're not as bold. Like monkeys, they sat gibbering among the colored spray. How is it they're unruffled while their perches bend and sway? If they can do it, Noah thought, then so can I. Be brave. But all at once, his face took on a mean, profoundly grave. He filled his lungs with evening air, which smacked a bit of smoke, and stood there in the shadow of that overwhelming oak. Determined, Noah scaled the trunk without another thought. Each hand sought out a sturdy branch, each foot a bulging knot. They'd see he was courageous if he met them at the top. But twilight's fading quickly, so I mustn't slow or stop. That limb is splintered, Noah, and it's in a fragile state. We broke it climbing up ourselves. It cannot bear your weight. Those tardy words of warning were drowned out by Noah's gasp, as pulling down upon the limb, he snapped it in his grasp. It compromised his balance when the chute tore from the bark, and Noah flailed but failed to find a second, stronger mark. He pitched and plunged at rapid pace, bathed in a tawny glow. 
All he could do was pray the leaves would cushion him below. I raked them into ample piles, Lord, make them nice and dense. But piles and prayers did little good. He cleared the neighbor's fence. And while the space beneath the tree was soft and yielding yard, the area he landed on was concrete, flat, and hard. But still, his end was festive, like a pumpkin. Noah's head burst open in a surge of yellow mixed with bloody red. A vivid stew of brains and gore began to blend and clot. The colors would have pleased him, for he fancied them a lot. His friends observed from far above the gooey, gluey scene. One said, I guess he's going as a ghost for Halloween. That was a fall poem shared with us by poet James Michael Schoberg to welcome in the month of lonesome October. It's Halloween season, which means only one thing. Everything is scary. Even video games, which is why I want to make you aware of a new video game coming out soon created by one of our fantastic illustrators, Abby Howard. It's called Scarlet Hollow, and it's a horror adventure game where your choices matter, with writing and hand-drawn art by Abby and an original score by our very own Brandon Boone. Head into the eerie mountains of North Carolina to the town your mother tried to protect you from and unravel a mystery that spans generations. Who lives, who dies, and the fate of an entire town rests on your shoulders. If you're interested in checking out and supporting this game, check out the Kickstarter they've launched for it. The link is in the show notes. I've spent some time playing the first chapter, and it's an atmospheric and engaging game. Check it out and see if you discover the mysteries within Scarlet Hollow. And with that, it's time to start our drive towards Halloween. So now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we join a man with a somewhat questionable job. Instead of finding gainful employment, this guy makes a living from robbing tombs. And on one such graveyard shift, he finds a rather enticing item. But in this tale, shared with us by author Hugh J. O'Donnell, we discover that sometimes it's better to let sleeping corpses lie. Performing this tale are David Alt and Erica Sanderson. So beware the dead, those bodies that lie beneath the ground. Ponder on their lives and what they've been through, because heavy is the head that wears the crown.
I found the crown during one of my spelunking raids under the city. Here, everything is built on ruins. The basements lead to the metro, and if you take the right tunnel, go through the right door, you'll find yourself a thousand years in the past among ancient ruins and medieval catacombs. The government's quite serious about protecting the sites. There are all sorts of rules about who can go in and when and what they can carry in. You absolutely can't take anything out. But they can't police all the tunnels, and the black market is always hungry for artefacts. The crown was without a doubt the most well-preserved piece I'd ever seen. It looked ancient, all black iron points and long chains that ended in ornately carved weights. There wasn't a spot of rust anywhere on it. I found it wrapped in layer after layer of rotting shroud on top of a skeleton in a side tunnel I don't think had seen any visitors in half a millennium. Even the chains were intact, coiled underneath the crown as I lifted it away from the corpse. There was some resistance as they caught on the wrappings, but one good tug and they came loose. The skeleton was less hardy than the artifact and it crumbled under my touch. As I stowed the piece, I reminded myself to be more careful. Any damage would make the sale price plummet. An hour later, I was back in my apartment, carefully scrubbing away the grime of centuries. The crown was gorgeous. Polished, it seemed even more well-preserved. It was remarkably solid in my hands. It would take some time to find a buyer for it, but I was sure I could sell it for a good price. I was no archaeologist, but I guessed it was at least from the 13th century. But I'd never seen something that old so well-preserved in the field before. I locked the crown in my hidden safe, carefully tucking the weighted chains underneath it. I double-checked the lock and replaced the trapdoor and rug, safe as houses, I thought, and went to clean myself up after a night in the underground. As I shampooed the gunk out of my hair, the crown took the focus of my mind. It really was beautiful. I'd have to do a lot of legwork on this one, but it would be worth it. Most of the stuff I recovered had some material value, gold, silver, semi-precious stones, that sort of thing. I always tried the antiquities markets first, but if I had to dump it for materials, I could. But the black iron crown was different. It was a real artifact, still intact, with all its chains and mouldings unblemished by rust. There was somebody in my little black book that would kill for a piece like that. I might even need to have an auction for it. On the other hand, I could always keep the crown for myself. It was a brilliant showpiece, a little bit of a resume, if you will. With something like this, I could break into contract work. I'd have to embellish it a bit, do some research, come up with a better story than tripping over it while exploring, but it would be worth it. Being on a payroll meant having someone to bail me out or bribe the cops to look the other way. Yeah. Yeah, I'd definitely keep it. I went back to the safe and pulled it out again. It was surprisingly heavy, especially with all the little weights and chains. I wondered who wore it. Not a king, obviously. It didn't have the right sort of ornamentation about it. And not a bishop. It lacked a certain holiness. A warlord, maybe. Or a duke. I could picture him riding into battle, armoured with the crown on his head. The chains must have hooked into armour, or a helmet, maybe. Yeah, it was the crown of a leader. A strong man. A man like me. (laughs) I almost looked around sheepishly before I tried it on. But I still tried it on.
I blink and take a breath. For a moment, I'm disorientated. I remembered fire and a crowd. I blink again and look down at my hands. They're larger than I recall and hairy on the backs. They're a man's, not mine. I stifle a shriek and the muffled squeak I do make is lower than I expect. I shake my head, the chains rattling around me, its familiar pendulum weights shifting at their ends. The ebon crown. Someone put it on. The spell worked. I've cheated them all. Death, plague, and most especially that sanctimonious prig of an inquisitor. This body isn't really mine, but I wear it like a gown. I ride it like a horse, and with both legs, not some feminine side-saddle foolishness. The rumbling horror and complaints of the original occupant stir against me. I ignore him. Let him fade to the edges of this mind like the sound of the sea. I stride to a mirror, my gait unsteady. It's huge and takes up most of one wall. It isn't silvered, but something else, something clear and bright. His features are nothing remarkable. The little room, though. Such a room. In one corner stands something like a garden urn, but with flowing water, and a Roman bath in the other. And lamps. Lamps hang from the ceiling. Their light is so steady and so bright that they hurt my eyes to look upon. The man who has placed me on his head must likewise be some sort of sorcerer, although none of his magic is known to me. I explore his strange chambers, and in one I find a parchment. I can barely read it, but it gives the date as Anno Domini 2018. It has been over 800 years. I take some time to consider the gulf of time. The rooms are filled with books, with light, with strange devices whose functions I slowly wrest from the scruffy little smuggler whose body I now wear. I spend days watching, reading, listening and learning. This world, this clockwork future, is beautiful and strange, but not so different as my own time. There are no witches here. The Inquisitors, having hunted us all, turned their eyes to merely the stranger, the outsider, the heretic. They burned themselves out in foolish hate. And now, they no longer believe in magic. The world thinks we never were. I am the last witch, and there is no one to protect them from me. <laughs> oh, what delights I shall find here. the thrill of buying a new set of wheels. No matter the circumstances, it's always exciting to get a new car. Or at least, new to you. And in this tale, shared with us by author Amanda Liefeld, this vehicle's new buyer becomes quite fascinated with certain details about the previous driver of his vehicle. Performing this tale is Mick Wingert. So dig deep, and then dig a little deeper, 
The information you want has to be around here somewhere. And if you feel cut off from your investigation, maybe you should check a Bluetooth connection. You may not realize how much of your information is stored in your fancy new car. Right off the bat, if you've ever connected any sort of Bluetooth device, then at a minimum, your name is there. It's always the first thing I check whenever I get into a new car. I mean, once my curiosity is satisfied, I usually delete it all. I try to be a good man like that, do the world a favor, and so on. But the car I bought last month had only one owner before me, and something about her name, it, it just captivated me. There was something innocent about it, something charming and sweet. I couldn't bring myself to delete it. I really wasn't going to do anything with it. I just liked to look at it from time to time and imagine what sort of person she might be. I could practically picture her. Petite, kind, soft-spoken, working in some sort of creative field, maybe? I'll admit, I may have spent slightly more time thinking about her than was healthy. <laughs> but it was all just harmless daydreaming. Mostly harmless. I mean, I, I guess I may have been a little overly preoccupied. After one too many one-sided conversations, my girlfriend ended up breaking up with me. I think she thought I was cheating on her. She was wrong, of course, but not too far off, I guess. I knew I just needed to stop thinking about my lovely car girl. I, I thought if I just knew a little bit more about her, I could forget about her. She wouldn't be the perfect girl I'd imagined, just a regular flawed person like the rest of us. All I had to go on was a moderately uncommon first name, not the greatest start. Luckily, I had more than my fair share of ingenuity, technical know-how, and um, spare time on my hands. I had just enough tricks up my sleeve that I was able to access the drafts of a number of text messages that she must have sent using the voice control in her car. I thought maybe those might disabuse me of my notion of her as sweet, kind, and innocent. Maybe some particularly raunchy sexts or evidence of her leading some poor, helpless sap along. Something that would prove to me that she was nothing special, just as trashy and selfish as any other woman. Honestly, part of me wishes that had been what I found. Instead, all I learned was that she was not being appreciated by the people that were lucky enough to be a part of her life. Text after text of her venting about selfish and inconsiderate boyfriends. Reaching out to her friends and loved ones whenever they needed anything. Going above and beyond for those in her life. But were they appreciating her like she deserved to be appreciated? Loving her like she deserved to be loved? I know they weren't. I know they weren't. I had to find her. She needed me. She deserved so much better. I never imagined a day would come in my life that I'd be stymied by the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, but I found myself quite frustrated when I was suddenly turned away from the DMV with absolutely no information. The next stop was the dealership where I had originally bought the car. Obviously, I couldn't tell them what I really needed, so I tried my best to sell the story that I needed to see the bill of sale from when they had acquired the car. I wove a long narrative involving a man getting aggressive with me and claiming that it was his car that had previously been stolen. Now the police were involved and my whole life was in shambles. At least the last part was the truth. <sighs> Apparently it's not their policy to give out that information. 
but they would be happy to cooperate with the police to corroborate the fact that the car was legitimately acquired. Assholes. Luckily, I'm quite resourceful. I still had a few tricks up my sleeve. I was able to use the car's VIN to look up its history and find out what locations it had been associated with. My sweet girl had been on some serious journeys. The car had made some long cross-country treks. I wondered if she'd been lonely making all those long trips by herself. I almost brought myself to tears imagining her driving down a dark highway in the middle of the night, starting to fall asleep and drifting across lanes. She wasn't safe on her own. She needed someone to protect her. She didn't even know that you needed to delete your Bluetooth information for God's sake. Luckily, once I had the locations, it was relatively easy to find her on social media. Like I said, she is a relatively uncommon first name. I was sort of hoping that she might be some repulsive Midwestern mom, right? And I could put the whole thing behind me. Unfortunately, she was exactly what I'd pictured. Petite hourglass frame, large blue eyes, lips as pink as a rose petal and just as soft, I imagined. She was, of all things, a kindergarten teacher. Can you get any sweeter than that? Apparently you can. Every single picture of her was something wholesome and pure. Her serving up food at a homeless shelter, her cleaning up a local park, her walking a three-legged rescue dog. In every picture she beamed like an angel, full of beauty and humility in equal measure. Once I laid eyes on her, I knew I was beyond hope. (laughs) She was the one good thing in my universe, and the one thing that could turn my pathetic life around. She needed me, too. She needed someone to keep her safe. She was so vulnerable. It had been so easy to find her. If I could do it, then any crazy weirdo who might want to hurt her could certainly do it. I had to find her first. It was a 15-hour drive, but I didn't care. I got in my car and drove all night. I was so fueled by my burning desire to find her, to have her, to keep her safe. Unfortunately, it took me a while to find where she actually lived. Her social media didn't have her actual address listed out, but I could see from the pictures what her house looked like. There are only so many residential streets in a rural Midwestern town. When I finally found it, I felt like I was in a dream. I was so close to irrefutable happiness. It took all my restraint not to pound on her door right that second in the middle of the night. When I knocked on her door the next morning, some guy answered. He had the audacity to ask me what I wanted, like he lived there or something. I had a whole plan in my head for how things would go, and this completely threw me off. I mumbled something about the wrong house and hurried back to my car. I would just have to wait until I was sure that he'd left and she was there. Now, believe me, I recognize how crazy this all sounds, but I swear I knew her life would be so much better with me. It was fate that I ended up with this car. It took a couple of days of waiting before there was a time where she was home and he was not. Seeing him come and go from her house made me fume. Who the hell did he think he was? Did he think that he could possibly know her like she deserved? Love her like she deserved? He probably didn't even appreciate how lucky he was. When she was finally mine, I would never leave her side. Not for a single heartbeat. Seeing her come and go, on the other hand, made my heart flutter. It was like seeing an angel walk down the street. Just her presence made me tremble. Everything would be better if I could just get her to see that we were meant to be together. 
She would be my motivation, my inspiration, my salvation. I would finally be able to turn things around for myself. I was so busy daydreaming about our life together that I almost didn't notice when the man finally left. How could he even leave her alone and unprotected like that? Didn't he know that some lunatic could come along and hurt her? That was exactly why she needed someone like me around. Everything would have been fine, okay? Everything would have been fine if she would just have heard me out, if she would have just been a little patient. She would have seen that our lives would be perfect together. But I was nervous. I mean, who wouldn't be? I guess I didn't explain myself particularly well. It all came out in sort of a jumbled rush. I, I could barely believe that I was actually standing in front of her, actually looking into her beautiful eyes. I mean, in retrospect, it probably didn't help that I pushed my way into the house. Perhaps she would have been a little more receptive if I had just talked to her from the front step. But, you know, everyone makes mistakes and I'm only human. What's done is done. I had just barely gotten through explaining how I had found her, and I was just about to explain to her how it was fate and why she needed me so badly when she started to freak out, right? Shouting that, that I needed to get out of her house and that she would call the police if I ever came anywhere near her ever again. If she had just given me a minute to explain myself, if she hadn't freaked out, everything would be fine. She didn't understand that she needed me and I could make her life so much better. I just needed another minute to explain myself, I swear. But she grabbed her phone to call the police. Now, obviously, I couldn't let that happen. What good would I be to her in jail, right? I mean, how could I possibly make her see how much I loved her from jail? Without me, she'd be all alone, vulnerable to all the people who didn't appreciate her, all the people who might want to hurt her. What happened next? Well, it really wasn't what I intended. I just wanted to grab her phone out of her hand. I, I needed to buy myself just a little bit more time to make myself understood, but she, she jerked away from me as I tried to grab it and she lost her balance. Now, as she fell backward, her head hit the corner of the kitchen countertop with a thud that sent a wave of nausea all the way to the pit of my stomach, if I'm honest. As she crumpled to the floor, leaving a streak of blood behind on the cold marble. It was as though time stood still. I stood there for what felt like an hour, the sound of my heartbeat pounding in my ears, drowning out any coherent thought. I was brought brutally back to my senses by the sound of a 911 operator coming from where her phone had fallen. My time was officially up. I'll admit, at this point, I panicked. I probably should have checked a little more carefully, but... Man, that thud, it did not sound survivable. I knew I had to get out of there as fast as humanly possible, and there was no way in hell I was going to leave her behind. I wrapped her up in a blanket and rushed her out to the trunk of my car, hoping to go unnoticed. She was as light as a feather, and I was overcome with a wild and desperate wave of despair that I had never gotten to hold her while she was still alive. I guess maybe she wasn't dead after all. I can hear her thumping and screaming back there. I'm half tempted to let her out. I, I, I try to explain myself, you know, one more time to help her understand the only possibility that has any meaning for the two of us is to spend the rest of our lives together. Somehow, I suspect she may not be in the mood for listening. It's okay, though. Everything can still be fine. We can still be together for the rest of our lives. We can be together 
forever. I'm recording this note with the voice control feature in my car so that hopefully when you find us, whoever you are, you'll understand why things had to be this way. I'm really not a bad guy. This was fate. At this point, this is the best possible outcome for me. For us. We deserve each other. And we deserve this. I just hope the car's computer will survive the water damage. We've all got that one buddy, you know the one, who has tall tales and wild experiences every other day. At first, you doubt them, you think it's nonsense, but then you spend a little time around this person and you realize they just seem to attract weirdness. And in this tale, shared with us by author Matthew Lehman, we meet two friends who've experienced more than their fair share of the weird. I join Matthew Bradford, Dan Zapula, and Danielle McRae in performing this tale. So make sure you're secure in your security job, follow the advice left by your predecessor, and no matter what you see, don't look at screen 13. My new friend Nick Harris was always a little on the superstitious side. As a child, he swore that he saw the ghost of his deceased grandmother watching over the family at her own funeral. Even though age and the chastisement of older family members eventually cast doubt in his own mind, the question always lingered somewhere in the back of his thoughts. What if... This fact was particularly interesting to me when he applied for a job as the night shift security officer at a museum that was rumored to be haunted. His friend Dan worked the day shift, and when there was an opening for the position, Dan immediately thought of him. Nick was a college dropout and was now struggling to keep up with payments on the student loans for his failed education. This was all on top of his many other expenses including substantial medical bills due to a number of health issues such as heart problems from his rather high-fat diet. The guy was not what you'd call obese by any means, but he was certainly not going to land any jobs as a male model, and the stress of his financial struggles did not help with his health. After getting fined from his previous two jobs, he was willing to do anything, so I suppose it should come as no surprise that he leaped on the opportunity when Dan let him know about the opening despite the rumors about the place. Those rumors did cross Nick's mind, of course. He'd heard a story or two from Dan about workers at the museum reporting strange occurrences, unexplained noises, moving shadows, that sort of thing. Nick even did a little research on it and found reports of paranormal activity in the museum's history. But of course, nothing had actually been confirmed. 
We had to admit that the thought of spending every night alone in a place full of historical artifacts and possibly haunted by ghosts made him nervous, but he tried to brush off the notion, telling himself he was being ridiculous and he needed any job he could get. According to Dan, it should be a pretty easy gig. Most of the time, he'd just be sitting in the security office watching the screens, along with taking the occasional patrol and making sure all the doors were secure. Aside from that, the managers didn't care how he spent his time, as long as he didn't mess with any of the exhibits. If Nick was being honest with himself, a small part of why he applied for the job and accepted the subsequent offer was because that lurking question still plagued him. What if? On Nick's first day, Dan gave him the rundown of everything he needed to take care of. It was seven in the evening by then, and the museum was closed and devoid of all life, save the two of them and Gary the janitor. At one point during the orientation, a question occurred to Nick. What happened to the last night shift officer? A grim look shadowed Dan's face. Oh, well, um, he quit after saying he saw a ghost in the basement. Nick blanched at this, to which Dan laughed. (laughs) Nah, I'm messing with you, man. He and his family were moving out of state is all. (sighs) Nick rolled his eyes with an agitated sigh. He and Dan had known each other since high school, and while they weren't particularly close friends... They were within the same social circle, and he knew Dan to be a big prankster, even now in his 30s, a fact no small number of people found infuriating. Nick resigned himself to the likelihood that he would have to suffer through a few practical jokes during his time there. By the time Dan finished explaining everything and showing his new co-worker around, it was well over an hour past his usual clock-out time. He left in a bit of a rush with a couple of quick pointers, including where to find the emergency contact list, as well as where he kept the safe that contained a Glock and some mace if the need ever arose. Nick found himself wondering if there had ever been a serious need for these items in the past, but decided not to question it. Dan turned to Nick one more time before heading out. Oh, and I left a note for you on the security desk. Just a couple things to keep in mind, nothing serious. And with that, Nick found himself alone in the eerily quiet museum, knowing Gary to be somewhere doing his end-of-the-day chores. He headed to the security office, where he'd left a couple of his personal items in a bag of chalupas. There were four computer monitors, each split into four screens displaying their respective views scattered throughout the museum. He occasionally spotted Gary going about his work in one of them, Most of them gave a clear view of the exhibits, showing old statues, tools, jewelry, and countless other ancient artifacts, as well as a number of wax displays depicting a Native American scene or prehistoric animal. A couple of the other cameras displayed the employee-only areas, including the storage rooms in the basement. Nick took his seat, settling in for what he hoped to be an uneventful first night, and reached for the bag of food. He paused, however, when he noticed a piece of paper with some writing on it sitting next to one of the monitors. Remembering the last thing Dan had said, he picked it up and read it over. 
Most of its contents were basically repeats of everything Dan had already covered. But then he reached the end of the note. P.S. Don't worry about the face in screen 13. It likes to watch, but it will only kill you if you look at it. Nick's heart gave a harsh jolt, his eyes bulging wide. His skin immediately crawled with an electric sensation, hair standing on end. Without even thinking about it, he very nearly looked to see what the note was talking about, but stopped himself at the last possible instant. Is this a joke? Remembering Dan's penchant for hijinks, this seemed like the most obvious conclusion. But still, memories that he tried to bury from his childhood came to the forefront of his mind. Specifically, the memory of the pale, ghastly figure of his grandmother standing in the corner of the chapel, silent and unseen by everyone else there as they mourned over her dead body in the casket. Despite how hard he tried over the years to rationalize that image away as the overactive imagination of a seven-year-old boy, that question had never truly left him in peace. The same question that now almost seemed to reverberate inside of his head. What if? For a few moments, he just sat there, rigid eyes reading over those last two sentences again and again to make sure he'd understood them correctly. What in the hell was it? His mind began conjuring images of pale, wailing figures or ghoulish monsters. His heart started pounding so hard that it actually hurt, and it wasn't until he had to remember to breathe that logic started to make its way back into his mind. Of course, there were no ghosts here. Dan was just playing one of his stupid jokes. A little hazing for the new guy, obviously. Even the use of the number 13 for the screen seemed extremely on the nose. Very funny, Dan. He threw the note in the garbage and let out a low chuckle that felt strangely insincere, as if trying to convince himself of the absurdity of the situation. Still, an eerie tingling ran over Nick's skin like tiny insects crawling all over his body when he thought of looking at Screen 13, wondering if he would see anything. He hadn't looked too closely at any specific screen so obviously had not noticed anything unusual. Now that he'd read that note, he felt the overwhelming urge to check and make absolutely sure. But some warning instinct in his head stopped him, and all he could do was stare straight forward at one of the other screens instead. Damn it, this is so stupid. Try as he might to convince himself that everything was fine, That question still haunted him, and his heart's spastic activity never slowed down, making it difficult to breathe. After a moment, he decided to at the very least try and catch a glimpse out of the corner of his eye. Still staring straight forward, he tried to discern what he could of the 13th camera view purely out of his peripheral vision. It was difficult to tell but it did appear there actually might be something resembling a pale face against a dark background on the small screen. 
skin tingling as his body tensed. His previous dismissal vanished in his mind, the fear returning tenfold. Nick never considered himself to be disciplined, but it took an immense amount of willpower at that moment not to look directly at the screen. Frightening questions and thoughts flooded his mind in a chaotic whirlwind, making him feel dizzy. His heart beating so hard in his chest, he could swear it might actually permeate the silence of the museum. I'm being ridiculous. Dan probably just set up a spare wax sculpture or something in the basement. But that persistent question kept playing over and over in his mind. What if Dan was telling the truth? What if for some reason Dan couldn't tell him directly, so had to let him know through a cryptic message? What if he just took a quick peek? The office door suddenly opened, causing him to jump, and he spun around in the office chair, gasping in panic. (laughs) Gary the janitor stood there, looking shocked and confused at Nick's reaction. Oh, oh, Gary, ah, oh, sorry, man. I, oh, you startled me. The old janitor cocked his eyebrows in amusement. <laughs> Just letting you know I'm heading out. Take care, new guy. Yeah, thanks. He flushed with embarrassment as Gary shot him one more weird look before heading out the door. Taking a deep breath in a vain attempt to calm his flaring nerves... Nick turned back and watched the security monitors as Gary made his way through the museum and out the front entrance, locking the door behind him. Hoping some food might help him relax, Nick reached into the bag next to him and pulled out one of the chalupas, unwrapping it and biting into it. It did very little to alleviate his anxiety. The first couple of hours went by without incident. Every now and then, he did a quick patrol through the museum, probably more than he needed to, but he hoped it might help him calm down. Unfortunately, walking around at night through a large empty building full of creepy, lifelike wax sculptures did not exactly put him at ease. Nor did the occasional ambient sounds he heard that he tried to pass off as just the building settling or the traffic outside. Each time he returned to the office, he kept his eyes down until he was at the desk and could position himself so that the fourth monitor with screen 13 was outside of his direct line of sight. Whenever he managed to catch a glimpse of it out of the corner of his eye, he swore it still looked like something was just standing there watching the camera. It could easily be passed off as probably another wax statue in storage that Dan must have positioned to face the camera. But, Nick could not quite shake the feeling that whatever was on the screen was very intent on him. He kept telling himself that he was being incredibly paranoid and he needed to grow the hell up. Here he was, 30 years old and working a job as a security officer, and he was freaking out about paranormal activity on his first day. That was the kind of thing that got him fired from his last two jobs. Not the fear of the supernatural, just behaving like a child when he knew better. He had promised himself this would be a new start for him. 
Maybe he'd start working out and get into shape to perform his job better. The starting pay wasn't ideal, but he was determined to work his way up the ladder. Maybe he'd finally be able to move out of his parents' house, rent an apartment, maybe even buy a house eventually. Maybe he'd even get a girlfriend along the way. (laughs) A sound coming from the fourth monitor caused him to freeze, and once again he battled the overwhelming urge to look. The sound was gone as abruptly as it had come, but he could have sworn that it was almost like a muffled giggle, like someone trying to stifle a laugh, but it had a raspy, wheezing quality to it. Placing a hand over his heart as if to somehow contain its erratic beating, he took several slow breaths to try to calm down. It's just a prank. It's just a prank. Dan is being a dick. Dan's being a dick. Trying to convince himself he had imagined the noise, he reached into the food bag and grabbed the second chalupa, taking a large bite out of it. Once again, it failed to bring him any comfort. And as much as he tried to tell himself to stop being a coward, he could not quite bring himself to look directly at screen 13. He began thinking of Dan's note again, and at some point it occurred to him that his co-worker had worded the warning very deliberately, playing off its presence as something totally normal. Of course, anyone's natural reaction in that situation would be to immediately look at the indicated screen, in which case they'd see whatever was on it and probably scream before realizing they've been pranked. For all Nick knew, there was a hidden camera or recording device somewhere in the office ready to catch him in the moment. His childish fears had just barely been enough to make him resist looking. But the more he thought about it, the more foolish he felt. With that in mind, he told himself he was going to look. He was way too old to be falling for this crap, and he was not going to let Dan play him for a fool. Taking a deep breath, he turned and stared directly at screen 13. Dan was utterly flustered as he rambled to the investigating police officer the following day. The museum was closed, and there were more than a few curious onlookers outside as the paramedics carried Nick's corpse out to the ambulance on a stretcher. Gary had been the one to find him lying on his back on the floor of the security office, a half-eaten chalupa on the ground next to him, his pallid face locked in an expression of utter terror. The responding emergency services made the initial assessment that he died of a heart attack. After noticing screen 13 displaying a Halloween mask set up on a tripod in the corner of the storage room, it didn't take much for them to guess what had probably caused it. A policewoman stood outside the security office listening to Dan's explanation, while Gary and the museum owner stood next to them, and I hovered unnoticed nearby. Were you aware that he had a heart condition? No, well, I I mean, yeah, but I... Kinda, but I never thought it was bad enough that he'd have a heart attack. It was was just a stupid prank. You know, just having some fun with the new guy. And uh, what exactly was the nature of the prank? 
I set up a Halloween mask in one of the storage rooms in the basement. Then I left a note in the office that said not to look at that screen because the face on it would kill him if he did. I figured he'd look at it right away, get a good scare, then see it was fake. He paused, fidgeting nervously. Am... am I going to jail for this? The officer jotted something down on a notepad. We're just trying to get the full story right now. As far as I can tell, the situation is pretty cut and dry. It was just an accident, and we found no evidence of intent. So no, you most likely won't be going to jail. Oh. Dan let out a sigh of relief, though he was clearly still broken up over the situation. Even if he hadn't meant for any of this to happen, his prank had supposedly caused a man's death. I noticed that the museum owners looked utterly livid. I suspected he would have fired Dan if he still didn't need a security officer for a shift. Has anyone looked over the security footage since his body was discovered? Dan shared an embarrassed look with his boss. Uh, no, we haven't reviewed it yet. The four of them then stepped into the security office, and I silently followed. Dan mentioned that he had set up his own hidden camera to record Nick's reaction and the policewoman asked him to plug it into one of the monitors. Between that and the security cameras around the museum, they were able to get most of the story. Nick had finally looked at the screen after seeming to struggle with himself for hours after reading the note. As soon as he looked, he immediately let out a startled cry, <laughs> causing both himself and the office chair to tumble backwards to the ground the unfinished chalupa falling from his hand. It was not exactly clear from Dan's camera what Nick had seen on the small screen, but they all assumed it was the mask in the basement. In a frenzied panic, Nick scrambled back to his feet and stared at the screen again. Then, he let out an almost deranged growl and suddenly reached for the safe under the desk. After struggling with the combination for several seconds, he finally managed to get it open, retrieving the pistol inside and rushing out the door. He headed down to the basement to where camera 13 was set up and stormed into the storage room, working his way past large crates to where the mask was suspended in a shadowed corner. Nick then pointed his gun at it and began shouting. Dan, if that's you, you better say so right now. I've had enough of this Five Nights at Freddy's bullshit. Everyone stared in utter confusion as Nick rambled at the mask for a moment. But then, the security feed became jumbled with static. When it returned to normal, Nick was gone, and the footage from the other cameras showed him rushing back to the security office. His demeanor had now reached full-on hysteria, panting and crying out in fright. Unfortunately, Dan's camera had run out of batteries by then, so they had no more footage of Nick inside the security office, including the exact moment of his death. The policewoman wrote some more notes on her pad. He must have had the heart attack after he got back in the office. She turned to Dan to ask another question, but paused, noticing the utterly horrified look on his face. What is it? Dan just stared at the monitors for a moment, 
then grabbed the mouse and set the monitor to display camera 13 on full screen to replay the moment when Nick barged into the storage room and confronted the Halloween mask. As he played the clip again, his face grew visibly pale. The other three looked more closely at the screen, and I could tell the instant that they saw it. Another face, barely hidden in the shadows next to the mask, looking down at the ground. How many masks did you set up? In a daze, Dan looked at her. Just the one. Then, in the instant before Static cut the video off, the face raced its black eyes to stare right at Nick. Shit! Motherfuck! A series of stunned, colorful obscenities filled the office as the onlookers saw that tiny hint of movement. This, of course, spurred the police into a much more thorough investigation, and the museum remained closed for a few days. They never found any other sign of the intruder in the basement, and finally the authorities decided that they would find no further evidence of foul play there. When the museum did open again, rumors spread like wildfire about the supposed ghost sighting and the mysterious death of a security officer. I couldn't help but smile whenever I overheard such conversations, always disgust and energetic whispers. Despite the tragedy, I could tell that the owners secretly appreciated the sudden influx of visitors in response to the incident, including no small number of self-appointed paranormal investigators. They wouldn't find anything, of course, though I delighted in the thought that if Dan decided to look at the security footage of him talking with the policewoman outside the office, they'd see that very same face from camera 13 watching them from right at the edge of the screen. I admit I felt a little bad for Dan. He had meant this as a harmless joke, and it ended with the death of a friend. He would likely live with that guilt for the rest of his life, especially since this job was supposed to help Nick get back on his feet. But it wasn't all his fault. When I overheard him talking with Gary about the prank he wanted to pull on Nick, I just couldn't resist getting involved. My new friend, Nick Harris, was always a little on the superstitious side. And now that question that always haunted him, what if, is finally answered. Admittedly, once he gets over the initial shock of his new situation, he'll most likely be angry with me, and I'll probably get a stern talking to from his grandmother at some point. But in a century or so, I'm sure we'll look back on this and laugh about it. You see, death really isn't so bad, but it can get incredibly boring. But now, I have a new friend. And I've stirred things up at the museum, which is sure to cause some excitement for a very long time. Because even ghosts like to play pranks.
books, a gateway into the unknown, the exciting, movies, pretty much the same, but there are moving pictures now. And what happens when the two collide? Why, we get a love story, of course. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jesse Rose, we find out about the darkness brought forth when a bookstore owner and a Hollywood actress become star-crossed. Performing this tale are David Alt, Sarah Thomas, and Ellie Hirschman. So hold on to the ones you love, because you never know when a horror movie might come between you. It can happen, at least if it involves the hyena and the horse. There aren't many people who haven't heard her name at some point, or seen one of her movies on the big screen. Most have gawked at her, peering curiously at the person who performs for entertainment. Deep down you wonder about the person you admire. What's she really like? Does she like pizza? Does she pee in the shower? Is she loud during sex? Yes, yes, and yes. And once all three at the same time, but that's another story. That's the real Mara Scotland, though. The woman who held as much enthusiasm for simple pleasures and mundane routine as you and I. The one that I fell for. Not the one that she eventually turned into. Actress by day, quirky, humble woman by night. At least, it was that way until everything changed. We met at a book signing. I own a somewhat prestigious bookstore in New York, and Mara had recently been cast in a film adaptation of a popular novel. She and the author were both scheduled to appear at my shop. We've had a number of celebrities schedule events with us over the years. There's always a buzz when someone is booked. The employees all gush over the prospect of hanging out with someone they admire, yet know very little about personally. As for me, these events were just the means to bring business in at a time when bookshops have declined in popularity over the years, what with the advent of e-readers. While there's still the loyal bunches that prefer holding an actual book in their hands, most have gone the digital route, and my store has suffered because of it. Personally, I didn't care much for the celebrities when they came in. I just did what was necessary to keep my business afloat. My ideal lifestyle was one spent out of the spotlight. The quiet life in the busy city. Beyond my obligations with the bookshop, I mainly just kept myself. A couple of close friends, no real family. I liked it that way. I was never much of a social person. In high school, I observed the majority of my classmates all splitting into their groups and cliques. While I didn't dislike them at all, I just never had much desire to be part of any social circle. There were nights I'd spend alone in my bed looking at the glowing stickers of planets and stars that I had on the ceiling in my bedroom. I'd lay there and wonder if there was something wrong with me. Why wasn't I like the other kids? Sometimes those thoughts would spiral in envy at the other kids who all seemed to thrive on engaging with others. As I aged and emigrated, I grew into my own skin, so to speak. Eventually I came to appreciate myself for who I am and not hate myself for what others are. I'm glad I don't belong. 
In a way, I'm the exact opposite of a celebrity, which is why I was quite surprised when Mara came to my store and appeared to flirt with me. I'd be lying if I said I didn't find her physically attractive, but a lot of the time, my idea of attraction goes beyond physical. A person can look stunning to me, but once I learn more about their personality, I'm instantly turned off and I view that person as a goblin in disguise. When we held these events at the store, we had our guests set up with a lounge area in the employee break room while they waited for the event to begin. Some of them wanted to be left alone. Some of them were actually pretty chilled out and hung out with the employees. We had an event coordinator, Tim, that served as a, a butler for our guests and made sure they were comfortable and had everything they needed. Mara was a little different. Shortly after she arrived, Tim approached me. She asked to speak with the owner. <sighs> I'm not good at these things. Can't you take care of whatever she wants? That's what I hired you for. Well, uh, she asked for you specifically, actually, not necessarily the owner. I just assumed she knew you owned the place. I mentally groaned, but quickly surrendered to the task that was required. Sure, I didn't like doing it, but it was necessary. So I trudged to the lounge and popped my head inside to see Mara sitting by herself on the velvet sofa. She appeared eager for my arrival, sitting at the edge of the couch and leaning forward. Oh, hi. She smiled at me and leaned backwards slightly onto the couch. She spoke with joy in her voice. At the time, she was 29 years old, but sounded almost like a child. I wondered if she was masking her voice to sound more friendly and welcoming than she actually was. What's your name? Hi, Miss Scotland. I'm Boreas, the owner. Uh, can I get you anything? Oh, please, call me Mara. Miss Scotland makes me sound like an old turtle. <laughs> All right then, Mara. Um, it's nice to have you with us. Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? Um, well... <laughs> uh, I was just, um... Wondering, if you're not too busy, you wouldn't mind spending some time with me? I beg your pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. You're probably running around like crazy operating this place. She leaned back further into the couch and turned her gaze towards the wall on her left. Just forget I asked. I'm sorry to disturb you. Her tone had gone from chipper to dreadful in an instant. Part of me wanted nothing to do with her, but another part of me saw something intriguing. From behind the window of observation, celebrities portray a certain personality that I often pity. But her voice and body language completely eliminated my preconceived notions of the Mara Scotland I've seen on television. This was a different Mara. One I was instantly attracted to. No, no, I don't mind. Uh, forgive me, Miss Scotland, it's just a, an unusual request. We've had many celebrities here before, and it's quite rare any of them care to spend time with the staff. Well, I guess I'm not like other celebrities. She perked her head up, whisked her long hair away from her face with a jolt of her head, looked me in the eye, and gave me a crooked smile. And don't call me Miss Scotland. Oh, right. Mara. <laughs> Sorry. Once we had gotten over that initial hump of awkwardness, Mara and I clicked right away. I spoke with her as I hadn't with anyone in years, with such vigour and an uncanny sensation of bumping into an old acquaintance. She smiled at me constantly and laughed at my corny jokes. 
She made me feel good about myself. On paper, it was a situation that was way out of my comfort zone, but at no point did I ever feel uncomfortable. It was as if Mara was my natural partner. After 20 minutes of chatting, her time to appear at the event had arrived. I remember feeling somewhat dreadful in that brief moment, thinking I wouldn't have another opportunity to speak with her again after the event was over. To my relief, she voiced her own desire to explore this dynamic further. So, are you going to ask me to dinner, or do I have to do it? She lifted herself off the sofa and prepared to leave the lounge. I rubbed my neck and felt my cheeks turn red. Uh, well, um, would you like to? Like to what? Have dinner with me? She smiled so enthusiastically that her eyes squinted. <laughs> that would be lovely. How about tomorrow evening? Uh, sh sure. Before leaving, she scribbled her number on a notepad, ripped the paper out, folded it, and with a wink, she delicately placed the sheet in my shirt pocket. She left the room, and moments later, I heard the crowd in our event area cheer her arrival while I stood in the break room dumbfounded. As though part of me didn't believe what had just transpired, I pulled the sheet of paper with her number on it out of my pocket to inspect it. And there it was. Proof in ten digits and her name written underneath, followed with a heart. No fucking way. I heard the words uttered nearby and turned to find Tim staring at me, eyes wide and jaw dropped. Did Mara Scotland just give you her number? I felt my cheeks blush, but tried to maintain my composure. Get back to work, Tim. Temptation is the ultimate drug. Our minds are inclined to indulge, to gratify, pursuing a specific chemical response that achieves a favorable emotion often overpowers logic. We are a species that's prone to destroy ourselves for satisfaction. It's like picking a scab. Doing so can leave a scar, but for many it's impossible to resist the temptation of sticking a fingernail underneath the platelet and removing the natural bandage our body has given us. It was against my best interest to contact Mara again, and I knew it. <sighs> but I couldn't resist. For the remainder of the day, I stared at the piece of paper with her number on it and the heart that she drew, debating whether I should send her a text, call her, or ignore it entirely. I began to wonder what she could possibly want with me, or what would become of our date, if it even happened at all. Would there be a relationship, or was she just looking for a fling, and what the hell did she see in me? The questions plagued me non-stop for the rest of the day. After all the pondering, I eventually sent her a text in the evening. Hi, Mara. This is Boreas from the bookshop. It was a treat spending time with you today. Uh, looking forward to dinner tomorrow night. I felt like such a fool after sending it. But it was less than a minute later when she replied with two messages. Good evening. The feeling is quite mutual. You have a really cute smile. Are you free around 6pm? You can meet me at my building if that works for you. And with that... Our date was set. 
I met her outside the address she gave me, and we walked together to a nearby restaurant a couple of blocks from her home, with a bodyguard maintaining a close distance to us. It wasn't long before I noticed that the spark we shared the day before had quickly moulded itself into awkwardness, though. Well, at least for me it did. And it became obvious that she noticed. When we sat down at our table, she became somewhat reserved. I was completely out of my comfort zone, and as much as I tried to treat this date as though it were any other I'd been on, soon enough I couldn't ignore the nagging discomfort I felt. I'm sorry, Mara, this is a little... It's odd for me, truthfully. She gave me a crooked smile. Why do you say that? It's just... I don't know. Um, <laughs> you're Mara Scotland. It's a little intimidating, I suppose. She shrugged and spoke with confidence. You know, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm not some goddess or anything. The only reason for you to feel uncomfortable about this is if you're just uncomfortable with yourself. For a moment, I interpreted that as an insult, but upon analyzing her words, I realized she was actually right. Social discomfort is mostly just insecurity in some form or another. It was easy to forget how important tenacity is in unfamiliar territory. I forced a smile. You have a point. I've just never done this sort of thing before. You've never been on a date? No, 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 no. I, I've been on dates before. I meant... I stopped trying to explain myself when she burst out laughing and I realized she was teasing me. I began to feel the spark returning. Very funny, but I've got to ask, what about me caught your interest? I saw you in the bookshop. You seemed to relish in your own thoughts, and I respect that sort of thing. People who live withdrawn tend to have important qualities. They often see society in a fair way and have... A gentle view of women. I gave a subtle nod. You and I are quite opposite. I prefer the quiet life while you're plastered over gossip magazines. Well, you just assume we're opposites. But that lifestyle really isn't me. It's not what I want. I just like acting, not what comes with it. She paused and lowered her head towards the table. You'd be surprised how lonely it can be when you're the center of attention. She raised her head and gave me a somber expression. I think once you get to know me more, you'll see I'm much different than what the tabloids will say about me. Despite our very different lives, I really felt like I understood Mara quite well, and that understanding soon blossomed into genuine feelings towards her. In those early days of our relationship, I can honestly say I've never been happier. Not because I was dating THE Mara Scotland, but simply because I was with a wonderful woman. Because I found someone who made me ecstatic to start every day with her. Her public notoriety was an afterthought. It didn't matter to me what others thought of her, only my own impressions mattered. I fell for her. We slept together by the third date and I was soon spending excessively more time at her place rather than my own. She'd stay at my place from time to time as well, even though it was far less luxurious than hers. It was basically a cardboard box compared to an elaborate palace. But that didn't matter to her. It didn't matter to me. We just wanted to be together. 
Three months into our relationship is when things started to change. She accepted a role in a film that was tentatively titled Hyena. We read through the script together before she formally accepted the role. It was a horror film about a man with an abusive father who had a promising athletic career ahead of him as a pitcher in the majors. One day, he gets nailed in the head with a line drive. It knocks him out cold and shatters his skull. When he wakes up, he finds that he can't remember his wife that's in the room with him. He doesn't recognize her at all. He tries to make the marriage work while in rehabilitation, but this supposed wife of his acts very strange. He catches glimpses of her crawling on all fours in the middle of the night in his hospital room. He sees pictures of her transform in front of his eyes with her head resembling a hyena. He hears the constant yips a hyena would similarly make before feasting on a dead carcass. Mara was offered the role of the wife. It was extended to her without any audition. Apparently, the writer wrote it specifically for her. If she refused, the movie would not be made. It's a metaphor. This man is struggling to find motivation after the accident, and his drunk, abusive father is threatening to beat him like he did as a child if he doesn't put more effort into his own recovery. The wife, or hyena, is a scavenger that's part of himself waiting to feast on the other part that's dying. Ah, very clever, B. Kind of like how people refer to their spouses as their other half. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A man and wife together are one. Uh, this part of himself has always been there, but he just never recognized it until after his accident. It's emerging because of his hatred towards his father, who has always pushed him into doing things that he was uncomfortable with, and now he no longer wants to do them. That's very perceptive of you. But what's with the horse constantly showing up? The script itself had a lot of imagery, and the horse was another. In many scenes, a horse would appear. At first it was subtle, the horse would appear in the distance with the protagonist observing it longingly. Towards the end, the horse actually enters his home, stands in his living room, and confronts the hyena. The horse is the other half that's not the hyena, his original self before the accident. It's a black horse, which commonly represents an underdog who succeeds and overcomes tremendous obstacles. So, towards the end, the man has sex with his hyena wife. Which is an embrace of his evil self. The horse watches, gets startled, and then the two of them slit the horse's throat and eat it because... Uh, because the hyena side of himself is victorious over the horse side of himself. And none of it actually happens, it's all metaphors. The movie ends in the next scene where the man and his wife are driving on an empty road in a convertible. There's luggage in the back seat indicating that they're running away together. The wife reaches into a bag and pulls out a snack, only it's not an ordinary snack. It's pieces of severed human flesh the audience is led to believe is the remains of the man's father. The wife offers the man a severed finger and he quickly sticks it into his mouth and sucks the meat off the bone. The camera pans out and the credits roll. I've never done a movie like this before. It's incredibly well-crafted. The subject matter is dark and brutal. I really admire this story. So you're going to take the role? I think so. Uh, could you run some lines with me? I want to see how I feel portraying this character. Before I could answer, she flipped the script and turned the pages furiously. Here, 
Page 34. You read the husband, Frisbee. I'll read the wife, Ellie. All right, but I'm not much of an actor. The scene she chose took place in the hospital as the protagonist, nicknamed Frisbee for the way he could make a baseball move, was still in the early stages of recovery. The wife, Ellie, was absent upon learning that her husband did not remember her at first, but during this scene she returns and vows to help him through his recovery. I'm sorry I haven't been here for you. I care deeply for you, but knowing you have no knowledge of who I am makes me feel... Unwanted, I guess. It's okay. I held the script in front of me. I I tried incredibly hard to sound sincere, but I knew I sounded like I was just reading off the paper. This is somewhat awkward for me, too. Yeah, I'm sure. Mara paused and bit her lower lip, staring at the floor for a moment, then looked back at me with tears filling her eyes. I needed some time to think. Just process this whole thing. I hope you'll get your memory of me back, but if you don't, that's okay. You fell in love with me once, and now you get to do it all over again. I had seen her perform on screen previously, but seeing Mara's talent on display right in front of me was breathtaking. She was a truly gifted performer, and I briefly forgot I was speaking to the woman I had been dating. It's going to be tough, but I want us to get back to where we left off, wherever that was. We will. Oh, we will. And it'll be so much fun doing it. I looked away from the script and into her eyes. Her skin had turned bright red and she was moving her tongue slowly back and forth across her front teeth. Mara, Jesus, you're scaring me. I'm Ellie. Right, uh, Ellie... Before I could finish my sentence, Mara growled for only a second, then erupted into a bellowing roar as she pounced at me. She knocked me over and pinned me onto the couch, then plunged her head down and sunk her teeth into my shoulder. What the fuck, Mara? I pushed her off me. She fell backwards onto the other side of the couch, where she sat momentarily with a look of confusion on her face. I... I'm sorry, B... Sometimes I can get really into character. The adrenaline was pumping through my veins as I looked back at her, clutching my throbbing shoulder. Christ, I'm bleeding. You you bit right through my skin. (sighs) B, I'm so sorry. I'll go get you a bandage. She picked herself up and walked towards the bathroom while I inspected the bite mark on my shoulder. Blood was running down my arm and it looked as though she had taken out a hefty chunk of my own flesh. The next day, she formally accepted the role. For the first time in our relationship, I was worried for my own safety. The incident stuck with me over the next few days. There was a distinct aura of trepidation while in Mara's presence, mostly on my own part, but I detected it from her as well. For once, I was actually in a positive relationship and it seemed foolish to just discard the wondrous last three months we shared over what could have been an isolated incident. It seemed reasonable that I had just witnessed the performance of an incredibly convincing actress. It was all just wishful thinking, though. Our relationship became further complicated when I stumbled onto my picture in a gossip magazine while organizing our news section in the bookshop. I noticed her name on the cover in big, bold print, 
Myra Scotland's New Squeeze. There, on page seven, was a picture of the two of us walking into her apartment with a short article. Myra Scotland appears to be off the market, but who is this handsome chunk of masculinity? Sources tell us his name is Boreas Terzi, owner of a dwindling bookstore in downtown Manhattan. I threw the magazine across the room without reading further. This was something I had feared ever since we started dating, having my privacy completely invaded. As a man who generally preferred to stay out of the spotlight, seeing my personal life being advertised to the world was infuriating. It was a lifestyle that had no appeal to me. I had always hated these types of tabloids, and now that I was actually part of the tabloids, it made me hate them even more. Why, why do people eat this shit up? Our society is relentlessly tough on the virtuous. This was more upsetting than Mara attacking me. That I could forget about and move on from. This was intimate violation of my private life. Part of me wanted to express how upset I was to Mara, but another part of me knew this wasn't her fault. It would be unfair to place the blame on her for something she didn't exactly have any control over. Still, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been in that magazine. In reality, it was my own fault for ignoring the inevitable public interest into who I was. I texted Mara and cancelled our plans that evening. A quiet night to myself was exactly what I needed. Revisiting my old life the way it was without her would provide some valuable perspective. Soon enough, I'd have to make a decision on which life would be best for me. There was quite a bit of irony in all this. The parallels were hard to ignore. Did I want the horse, or did I want the hyena? Mara flew to LA a week later to go over conceptual designs for the movie and formally sign on to the project. I had spent much of the time to myself, still gathering my thoughts but maintaining a courteous boyfriend persona, albeit minimally. She knew something was off though, her behaviour was changing, she became more withdrawn when we were together. At one point I caught her staring at herself in the mirror. For 20 minutes she would alternate between staring blankly, then into an animal-like expression with her teeth bared as though she was a, a predator ready to pounce. I guessed she was practicing for the role. It wasn't until I called her name that she finally snapped out of her trance. It wasn't fair to her to keep her in the dark. Perhaps she detected my ambivalence and wasn't sure how to respond. So when she called me while she was away, I decided it was best to finally open up to her. Listen, Mara, I need to talk to you. I, I, I don't really know how to say this. I, I guess I'm... I guess I'm having second thoughts about our relationship. B, I... I... I care so deeply for you. Really, I do. I, I'm just not sure if the life you live is best for me. Was it the article? Wait, you knew about that? I was somewhat surprised that she hadn't mentioned anything to me about it. As a person who was regularly featured in them, though, I supposed it shouldn't be all that surprising. Perhaps she could offer a better outlook on it. Mara, look, I, why don't we talk about this when you get home, eh? Don't call me Mara. I'm Ellie. The phone disconnected, or she hung up right after she said that. 
The sound of her voice reminded me of that day we ran lines in her apartment together and hearing it again made my body shake with fright as though an invisible force was playing games with my nerves. She wasn't supposed to be home for another week, which I figured would be enough time for the dust to settle and for both of us to gather our thoughts. Clearly, I had upset her. Clearly, she was not taking it well. Maybe she needed time to digest everything and come back with an appropriate, diplomatic response. Two days afterwards, I returned home late one night from the bookshop. I unlocked the door and stepped inside my apartment. As soon as I took my coat off, I heard the breathing. I flicked the light switch, illuminating the hallway but leaving the living room mostly dark. Only the light emanating from an outside neon green sign on the adjacent building shone into the room. Upon turning the light on in the hallway, the breathing suddenly stopped. The entire apartment was dead silent. Hello? From around the corner, a silhouette figure emerged and stopped at the end of the hallway, staring back at me while perched on all fours. The bottom half of the figure appeared human, but the top looked different. I could detect fur and the outline of an animal head. Dead flesh. Ripples of fear discharged and cascaded through my mind. The flight instinct quickly took control of my actions. I turned and reached the door in an attempt to leave, but as soon as I turned I heard the rapid pounding against the floor coming towards me. Before I could escape, I felt a blow to the back of my head, and then everything went black. Beyond the pounding headache, I awoke to a number of eerie sensations on my body. I was too groggy to take in my surroundings immediately, but I could feel tremendous weight being applied onto my chest, and that was making it difficult to breathe. My mouth was gagged and wrapped in what appeared to be tape of some sort, and my wrists and ankles were bound and kept immobile. My entire body felt as though it were lit on fire. Why do you punish yourself with mediocrity? The same whisper I heard before I blacked out, only this time the voice was right in front of my face. When I opened my eyes, I could faintly see the furry silhouette figure right in front of me, although my vision was too blurry to discern any prominent physical characteristics. I blinked heavily and opened my eyes to find myself staring back at the head of a hyena, Vibrant entrails protruded from a cut in the neck and hung below, draping over the naked, pale body of a feminine figure. I recognized the soft, petite breasts as Mara's. She looked down at me through the gaping mouth, sharp teeth, and upturned snout of what looked to be the decapitated head of a hyena. It was a prop from the movie that she had sent a picture of while she was in LA. She adorned it over her own head, wearing it like a helmet. From within the darkness of the head, I could see her eyes burning with rage. Don't scream. The more you scream, the more uncomfortable you'll be. The weight I felt on my chest was her. She had strapped me onto my own bed and perched herself on top of me, sitting like a vigilant gargoyle watching me closely. She had somehow managed to turn her already frightening voice more sinister. Mara had fully transformed herself into Ellie. 
She had turned herself into my own nightmare. We can be something special. Embrace me. She reached behind herself towards my crotch. Embrace your full potential. She was playing out the ending of the movie, attempting to lure me with sex as a way of confirming what path I intended to take. The decision that had been plaguing me over the last couple of weeks finally needed an answer. She reached down and removed the gag over my mouth, warning me again not to scream in the process. I laid on the bed completely frozen and helpless. She extended an arm above my head and grabbed something out of my field of view. Eat the horse. Dangling over my face was a slab of raw, bright red meat. She began lowering it towards my mouth. You're forgetting something, Ellie. She paused and held the meat inches from my face, waiting for me to finish my thought. You're not real. You're just a figment of my imagination, a a part of who I am and something I have complete control over. She pulled the meat away and sat in confusion for a moment. I'm not real? The hyena is a side of myself trying to take over my thoughts. You're a lie, a conjured metaphor. You can't make the decisions for me, I have to make them myself. She dropped the meat onto the side of the bed and I saw her tense body ease into submission. In order for the story to end the right way, you can't be here, you can't even exist outside of my own mind. My attempts at persuasion appeared to succeed. Mara climbed off my chest and pulled the phony hyena head off. She stood a few feet from my bed with her back turned to me, completely naked, deep in thought. You're right. I can't be in this place. A wave of relief washed over me. I had convinced her to end this insane charade. But before I could fully rejoice, Mara walked across my bedroom, opened the window, and began climbing onto the fire escape. No! No! Mara! She looked back at me from outside and gazed at me longingly. See you soon, B. She turned back around and jumped. We're all broken in some way. How we respond to our own defects is what makes us unique. Some of us find a way to utilize our shortcomings to propel forward. Others, though, as much as they try, their broken self forages every part of who they are, scavenging and ripping apart the ideal person they strive to be. We are defined by imperfection. We all have a dark side to us. Demons do exist and they reside in every person. That's the nature of being human. No gods, no devils. We are our own disasters. Does that make us bad people? Mara survived her fall. Three stories is not quite enough height to die from. She did suffer a broken leg. Our relationship, though, had not survived. It was as if she and I were standing together on the edge when she leapt off the fire escape, hand in hand, staring at each other, fading while mutually denying the distance between us. I chose the horse, or at least I think I did. Things between us ended abruptly after I was told she would recover without any lasting damage. I bid farewell to Mara and returned to my regular life where I completely cut off all contact with her. The movie was cancelled and I never heard from her again. 
Months later, I stumbled on her name in a tabloid again. There was a small picture of her on the cover, flashing a diamond ring on her finger, smiling. Mara Scotland engaged. Eh, may she have mercy on the poor soul. I will take the quiet life. In our final tale, we join a wife who's struggling with her husband. Not in any of the usual ways, either. But there's a look in his eye, something she can't quite place, and she doesn't like it. And in this tale, shared with us by author J.R. Hammontaschen, we find out how two loved ones create a universe and what happens when that universe falls apart. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin and Graham Rowett. So let's hold hands once more and step into the unknown while always looking to the horizon, while always remembering that no hole in a small world can truly be a small hole. To be married to someone for a long time is to create a separate universe. I suppose this separate universe has laws and systems that are similar to other universes, much the same way that the Amazon and the Arctic, despite being so different, are each governed by analogous laws governing temperature and pressure. Each marriage is similar only to the extent that people everywhere, I suppose, have common motivations and emotions. But to explain the dynamics of your marriage to anyone in any real way is impossible. The words make sense on paper, but the words are animated from beyond, from an endless well of lived experience, understood only within the universe of that marriage. Within your own universe, it can make sense why you become angry when, for example, your husband pours out your water at night before you finish taking all your pills. He probably assumed you left it out. Even though, why would you leave out water that was half-filled? It makes you wonder what he must think of you. Lazy, forgetful, and inconsiderate. Because he's the one who's making the money, and you let him do most of the cleaning because he likes to do it. And he thinks he's being considerate by pouring it out without asking you, as if that's something that he's contributing to the marriage unfussily disposing of unnecessary items. And the internal critic asks, why make such a big deal out of it? Surely he didn't mean anything by it. But to give a full accounting for that answer would require you to go through the years of your marriage and lay out each and every little inconsidered indignity that has led you to this moment. To explain to yourself why this all makes sense, but if you do that, you are shrill and crazy and... Fuck, maybe you are. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? 
So life went on and I never really complained. So the perception built up that it's my increasingly gloomy husband who, as we creep along into advanced middle age, was the one who's been suffering the most under the weight of life's accumulating privations. And maybe he has, actually, and I've never noticed. Which is maybe what you were thinking, because here I am, the one explaining myself. It's no secret that I'm talking about what happened with Robert. And it's no secret that first impressions are largely unchangeable. It's like a playing field split in the middle, with one side colored green for good, the other red for bad. Now Robert is on the bad side, based on how I just described him. I can tell you all the great things about him, how I fell in love with him, why I married him in the first place, how he's taken care of me, how he's always been faithful even through what I admit were long sexual droughts, has always been a good financial provider to me and our two children, and all the other reasons, basically, why I love him. All those explanations get me indulgent nods and comments about how things are complicated, and maybe that will, in your mind, claw him back some toward the center of that playing field, but the die has been cast and the impressions have been made. I'm the silently suffering put-upon wife, he the boorish brute, perhaps ignorant of his own privilege, or a well-meaning brute, you think, but a brute nonetheless. And when you begin to make impressions, let me just remind you of my universe's analogy, as clumsy as it might be. I think it gets to some essential point. We had a universe of two, and you're on the outside, looking in. I'm trying to be honest, as honest as I can be, knowing still that the first impressions I gave are likely to remain. I regret how I began this and wish somehow that someone could look back over the course of our marriage, learn the laws and customs native to our private universe, and render fair impartial judgment to provide me with some, I meant to say, closure, but that's not the word. Our two adult children are grown and gone away. Amy, our oldest, lives four hours away, Erin just under three. I felt guilty that we only had daughters, as all men want a son. Over two decades ago, we'd talked about a third, but my heart and body wasn't in it. And while he never explicitly indicated as such, I wonder if he bore any resentment. Maybe that played a factor in what happened. No, I don't think so, but things like that, you just never know. I had noticed generally that he'd been keeping more to himself. He read alone without coming out to the couch and asking if I wanted to read alongside him. Or I'd come home and he'd be in the middle of a movie that I'd wanted to watch. Whereas in our younger days, he'd never start a movie he'd even conceivably suspected that I just maybe wanted to watch alongside him. Maybe he was just extremely considerate back in the day, and I'm spoiled because who can maintain that? Or maybe he became too preoccupied with other things to give the subject much attention. In our advanced middle age, we've become sexless, which might be important to mention, but all couples become so, really. He didn't query, so to speak, and I didn't know. I didn't feel the urge, honestly, and I didn't want to embarrass him, 
so that entire aspect of our lives lay dormant. Also, our health hadn't been great. We were both overweight, as you can tell with me, obviously. But for a woman, it just feels different. I feel disgusting. This dumpy, garbage bag gut. Maybe that's where it all started. No, of course not. That's way too simple, way too pedestrian. But what is a rational mind for if not to rationalize? Since our health wasn't great, we were watching what we ate. I always thought we ate pretty healthy by American standards. But my impression from the start was that the onus seemed to fall more on me because I cared more. To please me, he would eat more salads, chew slower, and avoid fried foods and desserts. He was always someone who seemed to want praise. And at the beginning, he'd called attention to his good habits, which could be charming, although it's dispiriting to think that the needy habits of our youth remain essentially unchanged. I did notice over the course of several months that he took pride in disciplining himself enough to stick with something. He was always someone who prized order and routine, the type who hates rowdy crowds or loud spaces. Not that I'm much different in that regard. And always at least aspired to maintain some type of discipline. Such as, he didn't like watching two movies in a row, thinking it was indulgent and undisciplined. Like the greater balance of a night was being upset. Stupid things like that. He used to listen to podcasts about discipline and routine and working out. But what he ever did with any of it, I have no idea. He certainly wasn't working out to my knowledge. I wish I could say I know with certainty that we had the following exchange the night before everything went awry, but I can't be sure. It was close to it, at least. We hadn't eaten any dessert for some time at this point. Probably something like six months. I had more of a sweet tooth than he, and there used to be these chocolate fudge cookies, made by Feinstein's, that I used to just love. Rob returns to me one night while we are reading in bed and asks me, I was wondering something. Say the world was going to end in exactly one week from tonight, and we knew this. Would you still stick to our diet and avoid desserts? Why'd I bring up those Feinstein's cookies? He must have mentioned them, that's why. He must have said something like, Even those Feinstein's cookies you love so much? I thought about it. And when I became self-conscious about my failure to quickly respond, I said, Hmm. As if that overt act of reflection reset my time to answer. Yes, I think I would. I finally answered. Really, I knew I would. The only reason I hesitated was because those cookies, while delicious, usually made me feel guilty and gross afterward. He didn't say anything and appeared aloof, so I said with more confidence, Yes, I would. Robert nodded solemnly. I'm not sure if this is just retroactive imagining, but I felt that question carried some importance and my answer had been disappointing. Even worse, it was as if he expected my answer to be disappointing, and he lingered on me for a moment, as if reluctantly processing confirmation of that disappointment. See, I wouldn't. I'd stick with it. I said I wouldn't eat any desserts, so I wouldn't. He said it in an unadorned way that I know means he was proud of himself. All I could think was that it's a strange world where an atheist 
who has never articulated any belief in any objective meaning or higher power, finds transcendent value in refraining from eating cookies. You wouldn't eat cookies with me with only a week to live. Cookies and fish food ice cream, a movie on the couch, maybe a classic, and some nice drinks. Doesn't that sound lovely, though? I said it in a bubblier voice than usual, a bit faux-wistfully, a voice I used when I was cuter and which used to induce in my husband a masculine protective instinct to embrace and love me. He paused, half-smiled. When you put it like that, for you, I would. And he touched my hand warmly kissed the area of blanket which covered my upper body and turned over to his side. As we said our goodnights and turned off the lights, I thought to myself, maybe he'd do as he said. But he wouldn't want to. He'd be disappointed. He made me a promise and wanted to stick with it. The world ending would create the opportunity for him to be recognized as disciplined, even for something so petty. To him, that's still some kind of accomplishment. We often wake up at the same time. When one of us wakes up before the other, we usually go back to sleep until our alarms, reset for the agreed-upon time, wakes us both up. The day after that dessert conversation, in my mind it was the following day, I'm not sure, but that's what I'm sticking with. It must have been a Saturday or Sunday because he didn't go to work. I don't remember why, but I got out of bed before him. I was doing something insignificant in the living room, like reading the paper, holding out making breakfast until he woke up. That was it. Must have been breakfast, because I must have gotten hungry and went back in to ask him what he wanted, which also doubled as a way of waking him up. He was already up, and I remember... First thing I see is him in his white t-shirt and boxers from the night before, back toward me, crouched over and staring out the window. He had uncharacteristically opened the blinds. After waking up, he always first takes his pills, heads to the shower, or, if not showering that day, at least changes his clothes. But I recognized this t-shirt as the same one he wore the night before because it had a little red pus stain on the back near his neck from where he must have popped a swollen back pimple. I could see the folds at the back of his neck, the thinning grayish-brown crown that was the back of his head, and his knobby, pointy elbows, which seemed ill-proportioned giving the supple, fatty thickness of his arms. I was thinking of making shakes. Want one? I can make it with frozen bananas in the freezer. I remember acting timidly, as if the unusual act of sleeping late, keeping his back toward me, and looking out a window in the morning suggested something disquieting. He wasn't a man who tended to look out windows, other than the sporadic observation about an unusually pleasing cloud, the type of rote comment that anyone might make. Turning slightly to signify my presence, but not enough for me to see him any better, he only said, politely and almost with a sense of guilt. I'm not hungry just now. And before I moved or responded, as if changing course, he asked, Could you please close the door? 
I didn't know if that meant with me in or out of the bedroom. Without turning around, he must have sensed this confusion because he quickly clarified. Please come in and close the door. The obvious protest was that I was hungry and just wanted to get started making breakfast. His voice wasn't severe, and I didn't really expect him to drop any kind of bombshell on me. He wasn't that type of person. If history was any indication, he'd asked me to look at something on his body, convinced he'd found some kind of cancerous mark, which thankfully such marks had never amounted to anything. Or perhaps at worst, tell me about some minor remark or perceived personal failure of his that was making him distraught. Are you okay, honey? I asked this as a matter of course. I didn't want to give him the impression I didn't care. Of course I did. But I do remember thinking that I was hungry. He likely was too, and we'd feel better after eating. I sat on the bed facing his back. I noted he still hadn't turned from the window, or given any indication he'd planned to. Come sit with me, honey. What's bothering you? You know I've always loved you so, so much. You've been the light of my life. There were directions this could go. I was getting nervous from this ominous buildup, but also found myself getting a bit peeved, if I'm being honest, but in an anticipatory way, as if I knew this was going to be something of a deflating bit of deferment. Unless he had been hiding a terminal diagnosis from me, unlikely, since I knew every doctor's appointment he went to, there was just no way this could be as dire as he made it seem. We had aged out of the instability that allowed for betrayals and secrets. I just wished whatever this was, we could resolve it swiftly and eat breakfast. Honey, what is this about? Such a question is inherently direct, but my tone was, I hoped, gently accommodating. He shifted his weight slightly. I saw his shoulders rise and fall as if swallowing a great load of air, and he fidgeted as if not sure how to proceed. He turned partly. I stayed still, only noticing his eyes were still closed. He turned fully, came to me, and opened his eyes. Oh! I'm sure my hand came up involuntarily to my lip as one does naturally to cover the unarticulated gasp. And then, realizing this, I immediately brought my hand back down so as to not scare him. He had always been a nervous person, and to me at least, unduly sensitive to physical ailments. And this one looked, frankly, terrible. All I saw were his eyes, and I wished I'd been more observant so as to understand fully the expression he was conveying. I'm thinking of the euphemistic descriptions I first thought up. Both of his eyes were puffy, dewy, and swollen. That's what I imagined telling him if he asked, prepared to hear him telling me his eyes were burning or he was having trouble seeing. Yes, your eyes look swollen, a bit puffy. Then I'd trail off, try to get him calm, and get him to a hospital right away without allowing him to obsess in the mirror. His eyeballs looked like peeled lychee, an off-whitish pink, translucent and glossy, with wrinkles and folds I was not accustomed to, and generally appearing more globular and fuller, as if there was more eye mass than usual in his sockets. When he blinked, I wondered if his eyes fully closed, 
or if some part of that enlarged, moistened flesh prevented his lids from making complete contact in their coverage. That lychee description was perfect, really, because it captured the red seed, too. Inside a lychee is a red seed, which looks like a hardened kidney bean. And behind both irises, I saw a faint, dull, red, nubby protrusion that looked somehow too neat and orderly to be a cyst or other normal inflammation. That sounds terrible, I know. It was terrible. It was. Just stay here with me for a bit. This was when I first noticed his strange calm. Dear, listen to me. We need to go to a hospital immediately. I'll drive us. Just stay calm. I'm sure it's just an infection. Can you see? At that last question, he smiled. The smile of an inside joke. I'd seen it before. Someone says something that brings to mind something else. And you smile to yourself and think it's not worth the effort to explain. That's something just for me. That smile excluded me. And seemed especially inconsiderate given that I was trying to help. But I fastened my mind on this being an emergency and how it's important to keep your cool. Let him just consider that improper smile as creating one big I.O.U. I'll get to pick the dinners for the next month. And I could eat as many fucking Feinstein's cookies as I damn well pleased. And behind those thoughts, I chastened myself because I loved this man. A mistake. Because it was when I thought about how much I loved him and so desperately wanted him to be okay and safe, and for this medical anomaly to be over and behind us, that I began to freak out, focusing on the logistics and even my petty feelings about being hurt by his inside joke smile let me concentrate on something other than the panic fomenting inside me. Here was my husband, my companion and father of my children, with bloated eyes. Dear, I... I want to stay here. It's okay. Let me explain. This is... This isn't bad news, okay? This, this is, in fact, quite good. And he took my right hand and rubbed it between both of his hands. I shook my head as he spoke, not so much in disbelief as for waiting for my opportunity to interject and disabuse him of this... whatever it was. As I heard him out, I almost gagged on my next revelation felt it as a physical obstruction down through my throat and into my chest. This inflammation must have affected his brain, because what he said made no rational sense. I wanted this to happen, dear. I... This... This is what I've always wanted. What I've been waiting for my whole life. Dear, I can't cry now, but if I could, I would. He laughed self-deprecatingly. <laughs> giving me the painfully fleeting vision of the wryly humorous man that I had married and loved, immediately replaced by this stranger who spoke of ocular inflammation like a blessing from God. Just please, stay here with me for today. We can spend the entire day together. What on earth are you talking about? Please look at yourself. 
We need to take you to a hospital. I am going to call 911. It was becoming difficult to look at him. I could imagine him being mugged and in the recuperation process left with these jellied eyes. Don't you do that, please. Just let me get this all out. I'll be... I can't say much, but soon I'll be gone. And I don't mean deceased, honey. He tightened his grip on my hand to emphasize this point. I just mean I'll be off in a better place. You owe me an explanation. A real explanation right now. Just please, sit here with me. I'm fucking starving. I was shaky and struck with that weightless, dizzying feeling that comes from low blood pressure. Forgive me, but I've always been insecure about saying when I'm hungry, since I'm overweight and still not used to that. I still hold on to that childlike notion that an overweight person would burn through their stored fat before becoming hungry again. I got a hold of myself and explained. I'm hungry, dear. I want to make a shake and I need coffee. I can make some for you too. Then we'll continue talking. I could tell he didn't want me to go but smiled and said sure, as if he was indulging me out of remembered fidelity. I was sure somehow that after breakfast and coffee, he would come to his senses and allow me to take him to a hospital. There was no house phone, instead we each had a cell. Mine was still charging in our bedroom, and I assume his was in the bedroom as well. If he wouldn't let me call the hospital, then I'd first call 911, then our daughters. I didn't care what he had to say on the matter. I should have demanded he call 911 just then but I was famished and my head was already beginning to hurt. That type of headache where your eyes burn and your temples pound and your solid thoughts break apart into fragments and a great cloud seems to hide from you the next point you were going to make. Miraculously, I made the shakes as usual and could pretend this was just any other normal weekend morning in our kitchen. I called out to him a few times, asked if he was okay, and he responded affirmatively each time in that upturned, doing-great voice we use to let each other know that the other person is perfectly contented being alone in the other room, no offense implied. I wanted to get back to him quickly, so I didn't make any coffee. I came back to the bedroom, and he was laying on his back, smiling, eyes closed, face widened and contorted, as if he'd been crying tears of happiness. Although, of course, there were no tears to be found. I returned with our shakes, which he sipped. Mmm, I can taste the bananas. I had used extra bananas and peanut butter, which were his favorites. I'd stopped using pineapple and blueberries because those are acidic fruits, which aren't good for our stomach conditions. And remembering that bit of marital logistics made me extremely depressed and heartbroken. We had shared responsibilities. We had shared customs and etiquette. We had shared jokes and references. We had, basically, a life together. Our own universe as husband and wife. And now this. This was more than an eye infection. This was, I was beginning to understand, some act of betrayal. And somehow even worse, an act of betrayal that wasn't even being recognized as such. The taste of the shake seemed to be making him nostalgic, 
as if he really believed he was drinking my shake for the last time. You owe me an explanation. You're right. I know you're right. He put the shake aside and rolled over onto the pillow for a moment. With his eyes covered, he appeared absolutely normal, and he turned back over, seeming to gather his strength. If this was truly the beginning of some miraculous new development in his life, then I was the obstacle in the way, and I could read that conflict in his reactions. The elation in the waiting. If only he could move beyond this present remorse. I can't say much, only that I'm sorry. I've waited my whole life for this. I've studied and researched, and I've worked for this, if you can believe it. I've worked for it, long nights of study and research and... The streak of defensive pride that had been building was quickly smoothed out by self-deprecation. And prayed, even. Yes, me, praying, I know, hard to believe. But I prayed for this, which is, trust me, especially ironic. I'm being taken to a better place. This is a sign, the narrowing of the senses, it's called. I was shaking my head and visibly fuming, hoping my expressed disgust would correct the situation. In our marriage, it didn't matter who was right or wrong. Whenever one party became visibly distressed or angry, the other would become more accommodating and deferential, just to allay the situation and make peace. Because marriage is a partnership, and it's better for the partnership to function rather than for someone to be right. But not only was I furious, I had the added benefit of actually being right, and my performative anger only served to make me even more legitimately angry. One thing I realized, though, Robert's explanation seemed too detailed to be complete derangement. I had to approach this as something that he believed was credible. What is this? You have a family. Think of our children. And what am I supposed to do? My goal was to get him to come to his senses, to go with me to a hospital, and even more importantly, to acknowledge that he was somehow wrong in all of this, that everything would be fine and we would resume the course of our lives. Robert, sneaking about, studying and working and praying for what exactly? Some crazy cult beliefs? And when he was doing this exactly, how had I never known about this? For all I knew, he might have been laid off from work years ago, and we'd been paying our bills off savings, and he, what, skulked around libraries and jet-setted off to meet fake gurus who fed him mumbo-jumbo? <sighs> but I'd seen all our bills, and I'd have noticed airfare or other large expenses. And I'm very sorry. I'm truly sorry. This... If this makes any sense or means anything to you, you are the absolute love of my life. This all began before I'd even met you, and I know that's no excuse to you, but I can't explain to you what this means to me. You are the absolute love of my life, but this is beyond life. Before I even say this, I know how it's going to sound, but it's like the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind when Richard Dreyfus just has to go on the alien spaceship and explore other worlds. And here I'm dying on the inside. This has been so, so hard for me. 
I almost wish this miracle never happened because I know what I'm going to have to give up. And I thought it would be easier, but it's terrible. A terrible sacrifice, and I will miss you so, so much. <laughs> and I could tell he was crying without tears now, heaving and pathetic and desperate. And I wanted to hug him and console him and stop this suffering, to tell him I understood, even if I didn't. I thought, perhaps, to consider him as if he had a terminal illness and and just provide palliative love. And maybe, in a sense, he did have a terminal illness. So I hugged him, and he hugged me back, tightly and devoutly. Before we'd embraced, I looked into their swollen eyes, and my stomach turned, because in all this drama I had forgotten what pain he must have been in. No person could comfortably have rubbery eyes like that and still have their wits about them. Honey, we both didn't like that movie. Remember? It's boring. True. And, honey, if I remember correctly, didn't Steven Spielberg say he regretted that ending? I believe he wrote that before he had a family of his own. I kind of remembered reading that somewhere. We'd both found that movie so treacly and dull and wondered what the hell the fuss was all about. True, but... Now, honey, this isn't a movie. We... We can write our own endings. Don't you understand? There's nothing that can't be fixed. Okay? To this, he didn't respond. And I wished I could see his face as it rested on my shoulder. Was he coming to his senses? Now I'm going to take you to the hospital, okay? Don't you want to? Let's assume what you are saying is true about all the work and studying and praying you've done. Wouldn't you want to know whether it's actually true? Whether what you think is going to happen is actually going to happen? Well, if we go to the doctors and they tell you you just have... I don't know, some kind of conjunctivitis, then, well, that's something that's important to know, isn't it? No, dear. I have to remain right here, by this window. I bet that in less than a day, I'll be gone, or unable to move anyway. Okay, well, how do you think that sounds to me? Imagine you were me, and you heard that... How would that make you feel? I don't disagree with the point you're making. I could hear a hint of exasperation. It's morbidly funny if you think about it. He might be thinking he's heading off to his version of heaven in the next 24 hours, but... Well, not yet. There may be no sighing in heaven, but there definitely was in this bedroom. But this is something I can only do alone. If you have ever needed to trust, believe, and love me, then this is the time. This is the time. I'm not going to let you stay here for a day, okay? I'm not going to let you because I love you. Do you understand? Maybe you are right, okay? And then won't I feel silly when I come back here and you've been taken away by a magic sunbeam? But until that happens, 
You're my roly-poly and I'm your hug-a-lump. And you can call me a hug-a-lump even though now we're both fat and our youthful nicknames don't sound so cute anymore. Not like roly-poly sounds flattering to me either. Exactly. And we'll still watch our movies and read our books and eat our healthy foods. And you'll indulge me sometimes with antique shopping and we'll have Thanksgiving with the girls and... And you'll be around to become a grandfather one day, and we can resume bargaining over what type of dog we might get. That sounds nice, dear. It does sound nice. But I won't be going to any hospital. And I can't have you calling 911. I gracefully separated from him, still next to him on the bed. Then I stood up, feeling his eyes on me, even under all that bloated and gorged flesh. He watched me as I went to the opposite side of the bed, also known as my side of the bed, the side closer to the door and and where my cell phone was charging on the night table. Honey. I'm not doing anything yet, honey. Now, please, will you come with me? We can take you to the emergency room at Mercy Hospital. It's only 20 minutes away at most. We'd gone there for every operation, most recently his hernia surgery a few years back. Or if you'd prefer, we can call Dr. Harmon. I believe you have his cell phone number, right? Dr. Harmon had been our ophthalmologist for over a decade, and we'd seen him annually ever since I was diagnosed with prediabetes. I can't, honey. For all that is good and just and pure in this world, just please, please, please indulge me and let me stay here for the next day. And stay with me, please. I want you to stay with me. Just please, let me enjoy this day with you. And you with me. And there isn't much to say except for what you already know. I couldn't take that as an answer, which he understood. He had his senses about him, and you know that. And you know what happened next. I've explained it enough times. He wouldn't let me get to my phone, and he tried to restrain me without hurting me. And I tried to simply make enough space for myself to use my phone without hurting him. He perhaps thought that any sign of physical aggression from him would keep me from calling. I can honestly say I'd never seen that side of him through all our years of marriage. I'm still not convinced he even had that side to him, which is why his whole attempt at physical intimidation was so toothless and ineffective. Maybe he thought that I would just give him that one day, and if he was still there in 24 hours, and by there I mean physically there, not transcended or morphed or whatever he thought he might be doing, then he would realize his error, relent and go to the hospital. But I wouldn't allow myself to sit in silence and allow my husband to suffer. So I insisted. As he was coming toward me, all lumbering and uncoordinated, I darted out my free hand, only to defend myself. I freaked out when my aim proved wrong and my outstretched fingers should have made contact with his eyes. Should have? I've explained that part too enough times, and maybe I was more convincing the first time I explained it. You can only be told you're wrong so many times before you lose all enthusiasm to explain yourself, so don't be offended if I don't give it my all. Go ask my daughters, they believed me. At least the first time. 
do you ever think, why would I volunteer that detail about how my fingers should have touched his eyes? How would it benefit me to say something that sounds so crazy that no one believes me? But yes, as I said, should have made contact with his eyes. The hardened red seeds protruded further out. The slick, rubbery flesh withdrew defensively. Or putting it another way, his eyes contracted. None of that has to do with how he died. I stabbed him. You know that. He did everything in his power to stop me, and I defended myself. I'll leave it at that, because saying anything more is going to make me vomit and weep. I'm not even being accused of murdering him. The 911 operator heard enough to vindicate me. It's always about the eyes. That's what it's about. And the worst thing? I wish what he'd been saying was true. You know that his brain has been studied, and they tell me there was nothing wrong with it. At least nothing that they could see in an autopsy. So maybe he was in his right mind. I wish I could say that when he fell, helplessly and pathetically, as you'd expect of an overweight, unathletic, middle-aged man who never played a sport in his life. There'd been some giant omen. Some corroboration of what he'd been saying. Like the thunderclap of an anguished god. And I can't help but think that it was my fault. That I was too prideful just to let him be. I know, stupid. But that was my husband and the father of my children. Maybe in some alternative universe I could have given him his final day. And I'd leave, and I'd come back to find him gone. And it wouldn't be hard to explain that. People are ready to accept a middle-aged man disappearing from his family for any number of understandable reasons. I'd tell people I always suspected something. Some other woman, or more painfully but more credibly, some exhaustion, depression, and dissatisfaction that he just couldn't deal with anymore. That becomes even more believable with each decrepit year. That's what I'd say if he'd disappeared. But each night I'd look out that window contemplatively, up toward the sky, even though I'd had no reason to believe he'd have disappeared northward. And isn't that comforting to think? And I'd do it so often, and freight it with such significance, that I'd start to believe it myself. I'd convince myself that my darling Robert had fulfilled whatever mission it was that he'd set out for himself and disappeared into some sublime satisfaction. Instead, there's a body, and they'll come up with some way to describe his eyes.
Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 